All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 14 of Spiritual Psychotherapy. Uh, so I just want to thank all of you, as, as usual, um, because I just feel so grateful that I have this opportunity to sit with you guys in this space, number one, and number two, just to be on the same journey together. And, you know, I'm sitting on the subway earlier, and I'm listening to a lot of these things, and I'm I'm trying to uh, arrive in this moment. I'm trying to be in a space where my presence can also bring you to a place of increased presence, whether you're here live on Zoom, in person, or if you're listening on your podcast app. That's my goal. My goal really is, of course, the goal of no goal. But at the same time, paradoxically, somehow, for me to be as present as possible and for you also to kind of have the contagion of that presence. Um, and that's my hope. I don't even want to teach anything. I just want to spend some time together um, and let's enjoy whatever I, for some reason, put down here on this, uh, on this screen. Um, so the first thing that I'd like to do is I'd like to start with uh, a guided meditation more of just, you know, you can feel free to interrupt and we can definitely expound upon it, but it really is a beautiful guided meditation by Sri H.W. L. Punja. I think this is a more contemporary Zen master. Um, and the name of the meditation is You Are Peace. So here it goes. If there is peace in your mind, you will find peace with everybody. If your mind is agitated, you will find agitation everywhere. So first, find peace within, and you will see this inner peace reflected everywhere else. You are this peace. It is all your desires that you see when you think, but when your mind is quiet without desire, you are complete and as wonderful as you have always been. You have to simply become aware of the movement of the mind, which begins its endless trouble. So I'll pause there for a second. I think the main point of a lot of this is that your perspective is what colors all of your reality. And for all intents and purposes, for you, that is reality. So when your mind is agitated, that will be your reality. When your mind is at peace, that will be your reality. Reality starts with me here. That's what I need to keep reminding myself. Um, and as I speak to you, I can try to dissolve some of this boundary of feeling like there is a separation and a separate self. And like we always talk about from the Diamond Sutra, that there are no separate lifetimes, that really it's all oneness from that really clear perspective. So when we realize that, we can speak to each other as if we're speaking to ourselves so you know it's it's hard to even speak uh when you when you kind of are just sitting with that and realizing that but what this meditation is trying to bring us uh, to our attention is that reality happens from where you're sitting and the more you can remind yourself of that the more you can create your reality and it, it's not something to do with too much effort. It's kind of something to allow. And we'll see how that works a little bit moving forward. If you see the illusion, you are enlightened. But if you think that you are enlightened, you are in the illusion. The one who follows the thought is also a thought. The one who follows the thought is in thought. When you know that both are thoughts, you are home. So you are not at home, you are home. So what this is trying to say, I think, this is, this is an amazing line, right? If you see the illusion in that moment, you're already enlightened. But if you start to think to yourself that you are enlightened, you're back in the illusion. So it's a double-edged sword. It's being aware without thinking about yourself as small self who is aware. It's just the pure awareness. And then thought will follow thought. And when you once you realize I'm not supposed to be identifying with those thoughts, 
that's when you're kind of getting it. And it's not that you feel that you're at home, but you become that home. You become the home of all of it. Then thoughts just arise. Whatever comes, let it come. What stays, let it stay. What goes, let it go. You remain as that unmoved and unconcerned being. This is the highest understanding. That ocean of eternal peace is you. Your nature is to keep quiet. You came from silence, and you have to return to silence. The reason we suffer is that we seek peace elsewhere. And we do not experience that we are peace incarnate itself. So stop. Stop everything. Then you will realize that you are the freedom you have been searching for. When the mind is quiet, all is self. When the mind moves, the world arises. So be still. Throw away everything and be free. Reality is everywhere. And to find it, you must first disappear. All that you are attached to, all that you love, all that you know, someday will be gone. Knowing this and that the world is your mind, which you create, play in, and suffer from, is known as discrimination. Discriminate between the real and the unreal. The known is unreal and will come and go. So stay with the unknown, the unchanging, the truth. Actually, the only truth is to keep quiet and see what happens from there. When I feel ill-tempered, when I feel sad, when I feel distant, it's just something that is happening. When I don't compare it to the past and project it into the future, then it's just something that is happening now. I really love this because it takes away so much of the power of all of these transient emotions and thoughts. So when you just are curious towards this moment's feelings and emotions and thoughts, and you stop comparing it to feelings and thoughts and emotions of the past, and you stop projecting it into the future, and you stop giving this depression some kind of absoluteness into the future that it's going to determine the, the way that your life is going to be. When you stop doing that, you allow for just what's happening now. And that's just a movement of energy. It's a pattern of energy. It's nothing more than that. And that really takes away from, from all of that violent power that sometimes we feel our emotions have. And now she, uh, he says, it's a way of dying now. Anything that you have imposed on yourself to be unhappy, to be bound, is a concept. It is an imaginary concept. So give it away. Stay quiet and the noisy surface dialogues will cease. Then the substratum will rise up to the top. It is simple. Follow this. So who is journeying for freedom? The one who is already free. Thoughts are the impediments to seeing your own face. Don't give rise to any thought and discover who you are. You are peace, that which remains untouched. You are the one which is aware of the awareness of objects and ideas 
You are the one that is even more silent than awareness. You are the life which precedes the concept of life. Your nature is silence. And it is not attainable. It always is. You are emptiness, the ultimate substance. Removing emptiness out of emptiness leaves only emptiness because there is nothing beyond it. So I'll pause there for a second. This idea of we are imposing certain things upon ourselves, and those are the things that keep us unhappy. When Once we realize that those imaginary impositions that we've placed upon our psyche are totally conceptual. They're just bound by a concept. Once we give away that concept, we give away that unhappiness. The only requirement is the ability and the willingness to give up what we thought we knew about reality. And once you give up maybe some of the comfort of that, you open yourself to the truth of reality, which is a lot more undefined and unknown than you thought it was. This idea that you are just this silence, you are this peace, you are this awareness. Just allow that to kind of land on you and see how it makes you feel and think and behave once you're in that state of mindlessness. So he continues... Removing emptiness out of emptiness leaves only emptiness because there is nothing beyond it. Emptiness is between is and is not. And nothing is out of this emptiness. So it is the fullness. To be free, you need the firm conviction that you are this substratum, this peace, this emptiness. The death of desire happens in satsang. But this is the death of the mind only. So do not fear. Persist, persevere. Stay present and let your mind die. Stay present and overcome this death. Don't give your mind any more company. Don't be a coward. Invite death to come. And you will be eternal. You have only two choices. Allow your mind to live. Or let your true self live. This is your decision. All pain belongs to objectification. Don't let the ego own freedom. Do not objectify the truth. Do not call it a gain or an acquisition. Simply identify with it as you do when you see your face in the mirror. Forget this visitor called mind. And just identify as that. Why objectify God? Subjectify that. Go straight to the light. Immediately jump into it. And don't write an article about it on the way. Keep quiet. Entertain no doubt. Raise no desire. Remove all objects. And remain as that. So that's the end of the meditation. But I love at the end here, what's he doing? He's kind of putting your back up against the wall. He's putting your mind's back up against the mind's wall. And he's saying there are two choices. Either you allow your mind to live or you allow your true self to live. They can't both live at the same time, at least from your subjective perspective. Because the more your subjective mind is allowed to wreak havoc or even just to consider itself in its limited form. The more that happens, the less your true self can really shine through and the more you're going to continue to feel that you are this small self. So in this moment, allow the mind to die. I know it sounds extreme. It's not. It's just allowing the mind to settle itself down 
by not stirring it, by not disturbing it, by not trying to settle it down, by doing the opposite, by just allowing it to die. So that's the end of that meditation. I, I would be curious if anybody has any comments or questions, feel free. Otherwise, we'll go on to Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. Okay. Oh, sorry. You mentioned a state called Satoria or something, something to that effect? Satori, maybe? Yeah. What is that? So it's a good question. Satori is the state of mind of total enlightenment. That's really the, the strict definition of it. So Nirvana, sorry, Nirvana really is, is like the total enlightenment. Satori is the, the first sudden moment of enlightenment. So Satori is maybe a good feeling that happens with that opening to enlightenment. Great question. All right. Without any further ado, unless you guys have more questions, we can go on to Zen Flesh, Zen Bones. So if you remember last week, we we quoted some Zen stories, and all of those are from this book by uh, Paul Reps. Uh, he just compiled a bunch of different Zen stories uh, in this book. And if, you, if you're wondering what's the reason that it's called Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, let's read the first story of the book. It goes like this. The first Zen patriarch, Bodhidharma, brought Zen to China from India in the 6th century. According to his biography, recorded in the year 1004 by the Chinese teacher Dogen, after nine years in China, Bodhidharma wished to go home and gathered his disciples about him to test their apperception. Dofuku said, In my opinion, Truth is beyond affirmation or negation, for this is the way it moves. Bodhidharma replied, you have my skin. The nun Soji said, in my view, it is like Ananda's sight of the Buddha land, seen once and forever. Bodhidharma answered, you have my flesh. Doiku said, the four elements of light Airiness, fluidity, and solidity are empty, and the five skandhas are no things. And I think the skandhas are the different sense elements. In my opinion, no thing is reality. Bodhidharma commented, you have my bones. Finally, Eka bowed before the master and remained silent. Bodhidharma said, you have my marrow. So this is the first story. And very fittingly, it is the most, I think, important story uh, of all these Zen stories. And it's something I wish I mentioned in the very beginning. But um, the point of all of this is really silence. Ironically, right? And I always talk about this. You know, me being here and opening my big mouth to try to put this into words and uh, playing this game, and we always quote the Tao Te Ching, he who says it does not know, he who knows it does not say, and yet Lao Tzu wrote the whole Tao Te Ching. And that's kind of the point here, is that as long as you know that the words that you're saying are actually gibberish, as long as you know that the words that you're saying will never actually capture reality, then it's not so bad. But when you get lost and when you allow yourself to be deluded in that way into thinking that reality can be captured by your words or that, that your words carry a certain weight to them, and if you think your words are anything more than the finger pointing at the moon, that's when you get into real trouble. Oh, Baruch Abba, unbelievable. Again, in real time. Baruch Abba. So the point being that of this story that who was the, the Zen student that had the greatest understanding of this deepest teaching from Bodhidharma? It was Eka, because Eka simply bowed and stayed silent. And that is a perfect representation of an understanding of true Zen, because there's really nothing that can really be captured. And, and everything in our reality is not as it seems, because like we always say, 
We're using the sword of the mind to cut reality. And when we use the sword of our words to also try to, you know, express reality, again, we're not seeing clearly. So the point of Zen is to point out its own limitations and your own limitations. So already from the get-go, even though we're going to be have, writing a whole book here, says Paul Reps, this first story really captures all of it because there is nothing to capture. Because there is nothing to really put into words. But in a way, we need this psychotherapy. We need this ability to keep reminding ourselves on a regular basis that there's nothing to learn. And that there's nothing to do. And that there's nothing to teach. So the more we train ourselves to do that, the less we're going to need to speak, probably. And Zen is not even telling you don't speak. Because that's also too much effort. That's also too much work. It's much more about not thinking. And not thinking means just being more spontaneous. And a lot of these stories will, will show that. And I'll give you one example of that is uh, there was a story about um, a Zen master who was you know eating in a certain place years and years ago, um, like hundreds of years ago. And he saw that the, the geisha girl, the waitress woman, uh, that she was probably trained in Zen. And so he immediately, when she came to the table, he wanted to test her. So he picked up one of the steaming hot coals, the flaming hot coals, and he, he handed it to the woman to see how she would react. Immediately, she extended the sleeves of her kimono, and she held the, the coal on the kimono until she left the room and then threw it in the sink. That was her way of showing him, oh, no, yeah, you can't phase me. I'll be spontaneous. So then she goes back in the room to test him. She picks up a coal, a steaming hot coal, on fire, and she hands it to him. Immediately, he produces a cigarette, lights it on fire from the coal, and says, thank you, that's just what I needed. So the point of Zen is not about being some kind of ultra sadiq. It's not about being some kind of ultra uh, amazing human being. It's a lot more about just being fully present and fully spontaneous and fully natural in the way that we behave and the way we speak, uh, not being neurotic about it. Um, but again, that doesn't mean to be amoral or immoral. It means just to naturally flow with what's coming up. So Paul Repsi, and, and by the way, a lot of the Zen masters for that reason, you know, you'll see that the, the, uh, in one moment, somebody will say something, they get very immediately angry. All of a sudden, and that's just because that's what naturally came up. But then they don't hold on to it. It's not, and it's not real anger per se. You might not even call it that because they're not even taking it seriously. It's just what spontaneously arose, and then they just immediately, a second later, they're totally good and they're totally normal, and they're just uh, you know teaching somebody something. And the anger was not to put somebody down. It's just what naturally came up. And I'm not encouraging you know, any you know, unhealthy expressions of anger, even that word doesn't even make sense, unhealthy expressions from the standpoint of Zen. I don't go killing anybody and follow that noble eightfold path, you know, to really be on the Zen uh, level. But bottom line, it's about spontaneity. Um, and, you know, and then the next moment they'll have the eyes of a child and they'll they'll just be fully open and curious to the next thing that's happening in that conversation. All right, so I, I find that very, very intriguing. Uh, so here's, here's what Paul Reps says in the introduction to this book. He says, Old Zen was so fresh, it became treasured and remembered. Here are fragments of its skin, flesh, bones, but not its marrow, never found in words. The directness of Zen has led many to believe it stemmed from sources before the time of Buddha, 500 B.C., the reader may judge for himself, for he has here, for the first time in one book, the experiences of Zen, the mind problems, the stages of awareness, and the similar teaching predating Zen by centuries. The problem of our mind, relating conscious to pre-conscious awareness, takes, up, takes us deep into everyday living. Dare we open our doors to the source of our being? What are flesh and bones for? So I love this because he, again, is pointing out 
there's only so much Zen that can ever really be imparted. But the the marrow of Zen, the true essence of Zen, cannot be. And it's funny because it reminds me exactly of Sitere Torah, right? You'll read Hanambam talks about the, the secrets of Torah and Ma'asim Merkava, the first chapter of Yehezkel, talking about these mystical visions. And Hachamim said, well, you're not allowed to learn about uh, with two people, and you're not allowed to learn about Arayot uh, um, with one person. Sorry, one, you're not allowed to learn about Arayot with two people at once. You're not allowed to learn about uh, sorry, with maybe three people. You're not allowed to learn about Arayot with Ma'asei uh, Bereshit with two people, and you're not even allowed to learn Ma'asei Kava with one person. Instead, it has to be Somebody who's already smart enough to understand on his own. And what can you give him? You could give him like Rashi Perakim. You could give him the little highlights of this deepest teaching. But unless he already understands on his own, it's not that you're not allowed to teach him. It's that you're not going to even be able to teach him the Sitret Torah, the secrets of the Torah, because the nature of it is something you have to arrive on on your own. You have to arrive at all this wisdom just by direct experience of Hashem. I think that is exactly the same as this idea of Zen flesh, Zen bones, that the marrow is like Ma'asim Kava. It's not something that can ever be put into words. It's something that needs to be experienced directly. And that's something that we can appreciate as we continue to learn about what is this game that is Zen. All right. So any any questions or comments before we move on? We'll we'll do some stories. All good. Baruch Hashem. All right. So the first one we we've done, but I uh just because there's some new faces. So Ilka, this is for you. Um this is a fun one. I know you some of you are probably familiar with it, but I, I really, really like this one. It's called The Moon Cannot Be Stolen. Ryokan, a Zen master, lived the simplest kind of life in a little hut at the foot of a mountain. One evening, a thief visited the hut only to discover there was nothing in it to steal. Ryokan returned and caught him. You may have come a long way to visit me, he told the prowler, and you should not return empty-handed. Please, take my clothes as a gift. The thief was bewildered. He took the clothes and slunk away. Ryokan sat naked, watching the moon. Poor fellow, he mused. I wish I could give him this beautiful moon. So, amazingly, right, this thief comes to steal something from this Zen master's house, but of course, he's got nothing in it. And the thief is probably, you know, pretty disheartened by this. Ryokan sees that. And says as much. And says, you know, take my clothes. That's all right. And he's sitting there naked. And he's looking at the moon. And he realized something. Something he already knew. This is all that is. Just this moment. Just this moon. Not the whole storyline beforehand. Not the projected storyline afterwards. Just this moment, just this moon. And it's there's just no words for that. Right? You, you, uh, certain experiences of, I, I've had with my rabbi in Israel, just sitting there, spending time with him. And it feels like time stops. And that's the kind of thing that that is your true nature. Once you decide you don't want to be lost anymore. But it's not something that you can necessarily control. The small you, at least. And it's once that small you gives up that control that the big you is able to keep the, the small you from getting lost. Let's do the next one. This is called The Stone Mind. Hogan, a Chinese Zen teacher, lived alone in a small temple in the country. 
One day, four traveling monks appeared and asked if they might make a fire in his yard to warm themselves. While they were building the fire, Hogan heard them arguing about subjectivity and objectivity. He joined them and said, There is a big stone. Do you consider it to be inside or outside your mind? One of the monks replied, from the Buddhist viewpoint, everything is an object, object, sorry, objectification of mind. So I would say that the stone is inside my mind. Your head must feel very heavy, observed Hogan, if you are carrying around a stone like that in your mind. So, perfectly said. Right, it's saying it's showing you that the point of Zen is not to philosophize. What we're doing here, hopefully, is not to create a philosophy, even though it might do that. That's that's also fine. That's also part of the Tao, if you will. But what we're more concerned with is the awakenings of little moments that happen with Zen. The little awakening of this little moment with Zen. It's not about saying, oh, well, according to the Buddhist viewpoint, everything is an objectification of mind. Therefore, the stone is inside my mind. That's not Zen. Why is it not Zen? Well, it's very contrived. It's very intellectual. It sounds nice. And it's true on a certain experiential perspective. But when you put it into words and you say it absolutely, you just stole Zen. You took it away. That's not Zen no more. Right? And the master saying, your head must feel very heavy carrying around the big stone like that. That's exactly it. Right? So, uh, similarly, I know there's uh, Alan Watts brings down a, a story of um, um, a uh, Zen student talking to his master, saying to the master, isn't it amazing that uh, the mountains are like the face of the Buddha and the rivers are like another part of this Buddha nature. And the master says, yes, this is true, but it's a pity to say so. Right. And what's the pity to say so is you just stole the experience. Right. So it's like you, you're, you're walking onto this beautiful vista. And instead of just being able to appreciate the vista and silence. It becomes, wow, amazing, unbelievable. And sometimes that's natural and spontaneous. But sometimes it feels a little bit forced. Sometimes it comes from a discomfort with the silence. Sometimes it's just coming to fill in. But if you can just allow the wonder of that silent moment, it might be even more beautiful. That's actually feedback I've gotten from close friends of mine. Is when you encounter something beautiful, don't steal away the experience by saying "wow" or "amazing." Just just experience it, and that's very well received. I like that a lot. Um, the next one is called temper. A Zen student came to Banke and complained, "Master, I have an ungovernable temper. How can I cure it?" You have something very strange, replied Banke. Let me see what you have. Just now, I, I cannot show it to you, replied the other. When can you show it to me, asked Banke. It, it arises unexpectedly, replied the student. Ah, then concluded Banke. It must not be your own true nature. If it were, you could show it to me at any time. When you were born, you did not have it, and your parents did not give it to you. Think that over. So this one is one of my favorites because it disarms. That's the word I was looking for before. It totally disarms emotions. Emotions can seem scary and sharp and overwhelming, and we can identify with them and we can get lost in them and thoughts the same thing and anything that arises in the mind can be the same 
And when you put it so simply like this, which is you go to a psychologist or a psychiatrist and say, fix me. I have this anger problem. Fix me. I have this depression problem. Anything under the sun. If that psychiatrist or psychologist is not trained in Zen, what will they do? They'll commiserate. They'll say, oh, man, that stinks. And you have a real problem on your hands. And I need to help you solve this. I need to help you fix this because you got a real serious mental illness on your hands. And your life is in shambles and we need to figure this out together. And you need help. That's kind of the standard psychologist, unfortunately. But somebody trained in Zen, and it's something I really, really try to do when I can, because it's impossible to totally avoid that other thing, given certain circumstances. But what I really try to do is I try to say, oh, somebody says, hi, I'm depressed. I say, hi, I'm, I'm Michael. You know? <laughs> and it's like, you, you know, you don't have to identify with that depression. You don't have to identify with whatever thing you have decided is part of the narrative of your life, which clearly does not put words to this ineffable experience. But the more it's reinforced by people, the more psychotic you get. And, and I'm not saying it's so simple and that Zen is just going to cure this guy's schizophrenia. That's definitely not what I'm saying. But at the same time, I think there's a lot of wisdom in this, which is to do exactly what Banke did, which is to say, okay, you're, you're depressed. Show me the depression right here and now. And they say, what do you mean, show, show you my depression? They'll say, well, can't you see I'm crying? Can't you see I'm, uh, I feel sad? I'm like, no. I see you're here and that you've, you're expressing some, some intense things. But that doesn't mean that's your nature. It's just like a cloud in the sky. You don't know how many times I snap my fingers at my patients during the day. What, and I'm not doing that, by the way, God forbid, to make them say, schnell, schnell, go faster. When I snap my fingers, it's part of like a, a, an exercise that I do with them. I say, hey, you're experiencing these thoughts, right? I say, that's okay. Just let the thought go. And they, they look at me, they're like, huh, really? And they, like, like they never heard this before. I say, yeah, no, that's, that's fine. The, the thought is like a cloud in the sky. And they, I say, you know, you're the blue, you're the blue sky. The cloud's going to come. The cloud's going to go. Sometimes the clouds stay for a month. But the clouds are always going to leave. And the blue sky never stops being blue behind there. It's always there. It's always blue. But then sometimes what happens is the clouds take longer or shorter. And then they eventually leave. And then I compare it to sound. I say, did you control that? Did you create the sound of my snapping finger? You didn't do that. It's just something that arose. The same thing with your thoughts. Did you create that thought? Well, that's the answer to that is truly ineffable. But at the end of the day, it's the same thing as this sound. It's just something that came into consciousness that you observed and that left. Time-wise, it might feel different. But at the same time, that, that doesn't stop it from being the same as a sound. A thought is like a sound. And your true nature is not affected. It's not sticky. It's totally clean. Your true nature cannot be affected by that which arises in consciousness. And the more you remind yourself of that, the humbler you'll be just simply. Just naturally, you'll be humbler because you'll be like, There's, I don't own anything. It's just this moment. And it's all the stuff that I think that I accomplished. That's nothing. And even better, it'll relieve so much of your depression. Because you say, hey, that's not, that's not me. That's just stuff that arose in consciousness. That's like if I listen to a song, do I beat myself up for hearing that song? No. So too, I don't beat myself up for hearing a 10 years of sadness because of a difficult divorce or what, what have you. That's not me. That's just like a sad song that I listen to. Or my anxiety about the future. Oh, that's just a thought appearing in the moment. But none of these things actually can come close to defining you. This next story is called Finding a Diamond on a Muddy Road. But if, if anybody has any questions or comments before, and I would love to, to field them. 
we can definitely save those for the end. Next story, finding a diamond on a muddy road. Gudo was the emperor's teacher of his time. Nevertheless, he used to travel alone as a wandering mendicant. So just some guy would wander. Once, when he was on his way to Edo, the cultural and political center of the shogunate, he approached a little village named Takenatka. It was evening and a heavy rain was falling. Gudo was thoroughly wet. His straw sandals were in pieces. At a farmhouse near the village, he noticed four or five pairs of sandals in the window and decided to buy some dry ones. The woman who offered him the sandals, seeing how wet he was, invited him to remain for the night in her home. Gudo accepted, thanking her. He entered and recited a sutra before the family shrine. He then was introduced to the woman's mother and to her children. Observing that the entire family was depressed, Gudo asked what was wrong. My husband is a gambler and a drunkard, the housewife told him. When he happens to win, he drinks and becomes abusive. When he loses, he borrows money from others. Sometimes, when he becomes thoroughly drunk, he does not come home at all. What can I do? I will help him, said Gudo. Here is some money. Get me a gallon of fine wine and something good to eat. Then you may retire. I will meditate before the shrine. When the man of the house returned about midnight, quite drunk, he bellowed, Hey wife, I am home. Have you something for me to eat? I have something for you, said Gudo. I happened to be caught in the rain, and your wife kindly asked me to remain here for the night. In return, I have bought some wine and fish, so you might as well have them. The man was delighted. He drank the wine at once and laid himself down on the floor. Gudo sat in meditation beside him. In the morning, when the husband awoke, he had forgotten about the previous night. Who are you? Where do you come from? He asked Gudo, who still was meditating. I am Gudo of Kyoto, and I am going on to Ido, replied the Zen master. The man was utterly ashamed. He apologized profusely to the teacher of his emperor. Gudo smiled. Everything in this life is impermanent, he explained. Life is very brief. If you keep on gambling and drinking, you'll have no time left to accomplish anything else. And you will cause your family to suffer too. The perception of the husband awoke as if from a dream. You are right, he declared. How can I ever repay you for this wonderful teaching? Let me see you off and carry your things a little way. If you wish, assented Gudo. The two started out. After they had gone three miles, Gudo turned to him, to him to return, told him to return. Just another five miles, he begged Gudo. They continued on. You may return now, suggested Gudo. After another ten miles, the man replied. Return now, said Gudo, when the ten miles had been passed. I'm going to follow you all the rest of my life, declared the man. Modern Zen teachers in Japan spring from the lineage of a famous master who was the successor of Gudo. His name was Munan, literally, the man who never turned back. Very, very inspiring story. You know, not all of these Zen koans are quite are quite as inspiring as this one. But it's funny because, you know, you look at Megillat Rut, same story, right? It's uh, the one who didn't turn back, right? Orpa means Oref, right? The one who turned her Oref. She turned the back of her neck eventually. And Hazita, she tried her best, but she didn't compare it to Rut, who stuck by, stuck by, uh, by Naomi and ended up becoming the matriarch of David Amelech. And the idea of wherever you go, I will go. This man was turned on to Zen from the actions of Gudo. All he did was uh, 
sit there meditating and just impressing upon this man the temporariness of life, the transitory nature of everything, and that you don't want to waste your life on just doing this, causing other people to suffer, especially not that. And the man was so inspired by this. And who else does it remind me of? It reminds me of Resh Lakish. Right? We know Resh Lakish was a vagabond. He was a criminal. Until the Biyo Hanan, his eventual Havruta, you know, spotted him. And uh, they hit it off from there. I wish I knew more of the details. But I, I think he basically told him, if you learn Torah with me, uh, then you can have my money or whatever it is. Or then you can... Uh, you can marry my sister. That's what it was. He says, you can marry my sister if you just learn some Torah with me. And he, he ends up marrying his sister, but he also becomes his Habruta and a big rabbi. The point being, I think on the one end, it's never too late to change, you know, and, and that's a very beautiful story that we can tell ourselves. But at the same time, it is something that can happen pretty immediately. All it takes is the right circumstances. And I find myself quoting this book to a lot of people. It's called How to Change. Uh, my brother actually gave it to me one time. Um, I read part of it, and it was just remarkable. What's the psychology of how to change? Is the narrative that you tell yourself really is quite important, where people who end up changing notice that something happened, that before that event, they had a certain narrative, and then after that event, they said, I'm no longer that person. I'm not that guy anymore. I'm not that girl anymore. I'm a different human since that happened. And it's that narrative shift that very often spurs people to change. So this is in balance to what we were saying earlier. We were saying earlier that their narratives don't need to be taken so seriously. They can be like a sound or a song or whatever it is. They don't have to cloud your consciousness. But you see the paradoxical nature of this because at the same time, certain narratives are necessary to build the framework and to build the foundation of a psyche that is willing to sit and meditate or is willing to lead somewhat of a righteous life. So I think it is somewhat of a balance to be struck. And the beauty is at any moment, something can happen that can spur you to change. The irony here and the thing that, of course, is escaping us and me and for sure me, is how much of it do I control? I can never put this into words because who the heck am I? Where does God's will end and where does my will begin? It's not a not a question that has an answer to it, but it is something that is something to, to think about. All right, so that's the end of, of the Zen Flesh, Zen Bone stories for tonight. We can do some Zohar at this point. So last time in the Zohar, we left off with this beautiful derashah of and we interpreted the word from the word sapir, meaning sapphire, and reminding us of the sapphire brickwork underneath the quote-unquote feet of God as it appears in, I believe, Parashat Mishpatim. So we continue on here. And we, we left off last time with this idea of who are the people that are going to have this experience? Are the masters of the covenant those who have not abused their brit milah? And we said this is not about uh, judgment or shame or any of that. It's really just about naturally the energy that goes into sexual desire. If you allow that to become an addiction or something that you're always, you know, the, the episode of Seinfeld where George is at, is uh, celibate for an ep a couple episodes or an episode because his girlfriend is not able to have sex. And George becomes like this super genius because he unlocked this, this energy for his intellect. Well, it's in a funny way, it's kind of the same thing where if you redirect all that sexual energy towards spirituality, and that doesn't mean you can't have a wife and can't have sex, but it does mean that if you allow that to become your be-all, end-all goal, and it's not in the framework of something bigger and you know more, more holy in a sense, or just more important than just sex, then you open yourself up now to allowing that energy to be channeled, I think, into a lot more and sublimated into a lot more amazing pursuits. Um, and again, I'm not trying to, you know, shame anybody for, for any sexual things that they've done. But I think it's just a natural consequence of unlocking this energy 
for a lot of other purposes. So now we're going to go on a little bit of a tangent about, and it's a very interesting tangent, I think, about this idea. So Rab Sava said as follows, and this is, uh, again, this is like the the rabbi of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. So he's like one of the highest beings in the Zohar. Um, Do not let your mouth induce your flesh to, to sin, he says. And this is a quote from Kohelet. So what does this mean? One should not let his mouth reach evil fantasies, causing that holy flesh in which the holy covenant is sealed to sin. Right. So if you allow yourself to indulge in fantasies, even with your words, it can lead you towards sin. Right. So if you go too far into the planning and into the all these things, even if you're not, don't think you're going to do them. It's there's a likelihood that it's going to lead you to actually sin, especially in a sexual way. If he does, he is dragged into hell. Well, this is interesting. Why is he dragged into hell? Well, hell is being enslaved to the passions. That's what hell is. Not hell as in God is judging you because, in a sense, it is that. Because the judgment of God is the fact of what's happening to you. When you do things that are foolish, you're going to get consequences, naturally. And that's what it means to be dragged into hell. The one appointed over hell is named Duma. Who's Duma? Duma literally means silence. And it's it actually comes from a pasuk in Tehillim. Uh, or something like that. Unless God had been my help, my soul would soon have dwelt in Duma, which means that utter silence of being six feet under. Um, but then in later rabbinic literature, Duma is the angel in charge of the souls of the dead. And then in the Zohar, even later, he retains this role of being in charge of the souls of the dead, but also oversees hell. Right? So Duma is like this, like, you know, the... The, the the meme of uh, of Elmo asking on Twitter, how's everybody doing? And every everyone in America is answering how depressed they are now. All these terrible mental health things are going on for them. And Elmo is like, Elmo is glad that Elmo asked how everybody's doing. And then there's a great meme that Elmo opened up like this yawning chasm of despair. And, and it's kind of way I think of Duma is like this yawning chasm of empty despair. And that's kind of what happens when you are chasing after pleasures only. Um, so the one appointed over hell is named Duma, who was escorted by many myriads of angels of destruction. Thank you. Um, he stands at the door of hell, but he is not permitted to approach any of those who guarded the holy covenant in this world. Right. So if you did not sin in that way with the passions, with the the Brit Milah, um, then you won't be susceptible to Duma. Interestingly enough, Rabbi Levi said in the time to come, Abraham, who initiated circumcision, will be sitting at the door to hell, and he will not let any circumcised Israelite descend there. Right. So that idea of no one who has a brit milah is going to go to that hell. The, the, the symbolism of that is anybody who actually keeps what this covenant represents, which is, by the way, the sperm is going between the, the different parts of the penis, actually represents... B'nai Israel going through the Yamsuf. Legit, if you look in the Helim, and Ronnie Bennett will give you a whole spiel on this, but it's unbelievable. Your, your, your sperm is literally passing through the covenant the same way Abraham Avinu passed through the covenant of the parts, and the same way that B'nai Israel passed through the Yamsuf, which is like a covenantal ceremony of God acquiring B'nai Israel. The same thing is you're ensuring that your child passes through your covenant. And if you give your child the Brit Milah, you're ensuring your grandchildren. Right? That even your grandchildren are going to be passing through the covenant. So what it means is, obviously, somebody who keeps this covenant in a certain way to not allow themselves to be addicted to endless pleasure-seeking. Because we know that that brings nothing but despair and Duma. Right? So... That is that. Now we get into David HaMelech. King David, when that incident befell him, it says, right? Of course, we're talking about Bathsheba. When David put Bathsheba, he slept with Bathsheba, and then he put Bathsheba's husband, Uriah HaHiti, um, on the front lines till he was killed. When After that happened with David, 
he was frightened. That moment, Duma rose in the presence of Akadosh Baruch and said to him, Master of the universe, it is written in the Torah, a man who commits adultery with a man's wife, and, right, so that, right, you, you should be put to death, right, both the adulterer and the adulteress, and also, uh, it's another love against, it's another prohibition against adultery. So David, who ruined the covenant by lewdness, what shall be done to him? This is Dumas' case against David. You can think about this in a very deep, symbolic, psychological way. As if this is something going on in David's mind. David is meditating with God. And the like the uh, prosecution is saying, David, you did something so terrible. You abused the sign of the covenant. And you sent a man to die. Well, let's see. And I don't, I just want to give as a proviso, I don't want this to be a, a, a whitewashing session for what happened with David, but rather to be something that shows you, you can't really ever label yourself as sinner who is now doomed forever. I, I want that to be kind of the the way of understanding this. HaKadosh Baruch Hu said to him, David is innocent and the Holy Covenant stands arrayed. For it is revealed before me that Bathsheba was destined for him since the day the world was created. Right? So Hashem is saying, well, Bathsheba was already predestined. So therefore, you know, really what David did was was uh, more condonable. Um, and even Rabbi Ishmael had said in the Gemara, she was designated for David, but he ate her unripe. Yani he, he took her prematurely while she was still married to Bathsheba, so to, to Uriah. Right? So... Okay, it was predestined. David didn't know, but Hashem has a bigger plan. He replied, Duma replies, even if it is revealed before you, before him it was not. So David doesn't know the divine perspective. Hashem says further, what happened, happened with permission. For all of those entering battle, no one would enter until he legally divorced his wife. Okay, so logically, everybody was de facto divorced before they went to battle. Is this really true? Is this kind of part of the mid? It's a good question. But again, this is like an internal psyche conversation for David. That's the way I'm reading this. Is David's trying to almost defend himself against his own demons here. He replied, Dumas replies, if so, he should have waited three months. And he didn't, right? You have to wait three months to, to see if you would have a kid after three months from now. It's for sure yours. But if you would have had a kid before that, and you didn't wait the three months. It might have been Uriah's kid. So this is where Dumas is trying to get David. He said, concerning which case was that rule, that rule established, where we feared she might be pregnant. And Hashem is saying, no, this is only if we are actually afraid that she might be pregnant. But it is revealed before me that Uriah never approached her for, look, my name is sealed within him as evidence. It is spelled both Uriah and Uriahu. And you see how much Hashem's name is in his name, Uriahu. And because Hashem's name is evident in Uriah's name, that shows you that really he actually never uh, was with her and he didn't get her pregnant. My name is sealed in him, proving he never cohabited with her. Um, and you even see that uh, according to the text itself in, in Shemuel, she was like a daughter to him, uh, uh, Bat So it seems that that actually might be true. He might have never actually slept with her. He replied, Master of the universe, I, as I already said, even if before you it is revealed that Uriah did not lie with her, was it revealed to him, to David? He should have waited three months for her. Furthermore, if he knew that he never lay with her, right? if David knew that Uriah never was with his wife, why did David send for him and order him to have intercourse with his wife? As it is written, go down to your house and bathe your feet. Right? If David thought that he never had, you know, had been with his wife, then why would he have to command him to go and be with her? He said he certainly did not know. He's like, all right, Duma, Hashem says, you're right. David did not know about uh, what, what the circumstances were with uh, Uriah's marriage, but he waited longer than three months, actually four. So we have, so for so we have learned on the 25th of Nisan, David issues a, a proclamation throughout Israel. And by the 7th of Sivan, they had assembled under Yoav. Then they set out and destroyed the land of the children of Ammon. They, they lingered there for Sivan, Tammuz, Av, and Elul. And on the 24th of Elul, happened what happened with Bathsheba. The point of all this is just to try to show you how he definitely waited at least three months. On Yom Kippur, HaKadosh Baruch Hu forgave him that sin. 
Some say he issued the proclamation on the 7th of Adar, the 7th on the 15th of Yar, 15th of Elul happened. What happened with Bathsheba on Yom Kippur? He was assured, Hashem has removed your sin. You will not die. What does you will not die mean? You will not die at the hand of Duma. All right, so all of this is halachic kind of dispute that, he, oh, yes, he actually did wait three months. Neither here nor there. You could see the neuroticism that arises in the human psyche, right, in David's psyche, because he did something questionable, especially with his own covenant, with his own berit milah. Duma replied, Master of the Universe, I still have one thing against him. He opened his mouth and said, as, as Hashem lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He condemns. He condemned him. Condemned himself. I claim him, says Duma. Hashem replies, "No, you are not entitled." He confessed to me, saying, "I have sinned against you, Kevavka, even though he did not sin." Right. So we just proved from all that halachic stuff, he did not actually sin against Uriah. Which again, I don't think you have to take as literal, but rather as an internal conversation in David's mind. But as for his sin against, sorry, so he didn't sin with Bathsheba. But as for his sin against Uriah, meaning killing Uriah, I sentenced him to punishment, which he received. Arranging for Uriah's death. That's something he was punished with, according to the Peshat, because as Natana Navi prophesied, David's dynasty is going to be wracked by war. His wife is going to be violated. His child born with Bathsheba, the first one, is going to, be, is going to die. All of his other children are going to rebel against him. So that is the punishment that he already is going to receive for doing something where he resulted in the, in the death of of, uh, of a human being. Um, but as for what happened with Bathsheba, that's not something that we can absolutely condemn David for. And again, I think this is a way of showing no one is ever fully absolved from what they did. But at the same time, you don't have to fully put yourself in the doghouse forever and ever and ever. That's the way I read it. But let's see what we see here now. Immediately, and I think it's trying to really impress upon us the importance of this stuff about the keeping the covenant of the Bidit Milah. Immediately, Duma ret returned in despair to his side concerning this. David said, unless Hashem had been my help, my soul would have soon dwelt with Duma. Unless Hashem had been my help, my guardian, my soul would have soon dwelt. What does would soon have dwelt mean? What is, so what does it mean? I almost dwelt with Duma by a thread as fine as a filament of hair. Separating me from the sitra ahra, from the other side. Meaning, heaven and earth are so close. And there's so many rabbinic sayings about this. It could be like a hand breath. It could be like a wall. By that measure, my soul did not dwell with Duma. So David is pointing out here, I was this close to being in total hell. To being ruined forever and ever. Because I did something so bad with my barit milah. So the, the Zohar is concluding at this point. So a person should be on guard not to speak as David did. And I would say not to act as David did. Since one will not be able to plead with Duma that it was an error. As it says in Kohelet in the continuation of the Pasuk. As happened with David when the Blessed Holy One defeated him legally. So Hashem was able to defeat Duma legally for David's sake. But for your sake, there's no guarantee. So don't play around with that. Why should God be angry at your voice? At the voice in which one speaks and destroy the work of your hands. Holy flesh, holy covenant that he damages Right, so this is all part of that same pasuk. Why should Hashem be angry at your speaking and destroy Maase Yadav, which we said last week means the the, the Berit Milah, and he's dragged into hell by Duma. So if you don't want to end up like David almost did, then do not act uh, haphazardly with your Berit Milah. And uh, we know that David represents Shekhinah in the, the Sefirot. And Shekhinah is known to be right above the Sitra Ahra, and they're almost facing each other, right? So heaven and hell are almost kissing each other, right? If you look in Yerushalayim, Harabayit is right over there, and then Geben Enom is right over there. So heaven and hell are like two sides of the same coin. And David, who is someone that's so much a part of who we are, being part of Shevet Yehuda, Yehuda also is somebody who, in a way, did very questionable things with his Brit Milah, but ended up impregnating Tamar and having children who ended up becoming David HaMelech. Through that, a big part of this, I think, is trying to show you the salvation comes from the place you least expect it. The heavenly connection, the deepest, most unbelievable revolution in your connection with God 
may just come from the least expected place, may even come from borderline sinful relationships, which it did in the case of David, it did in the case of maybe Yehuda. And I think this gives us a lot of hope because it says no matter what you've done, God is always saying maybe. God, you're thinking to yourself, is this going to be good? Is this going to be bad? God's saying maybe. Is the, is the result of this terrible thing that I did or this very good thing going to be good or bad? I don't know. We'll find out. And the point is, Hashem is keeping everything temporary. Everything's turning over. There's no absolutes here. And the more we remind ourselves, all right, let, let me try to act in a good way. But even if I've failed, it's not, I'm going to suffer. But it's not the end of the road. And there's always hope. So just to bring everything full circle, you know, the, the similar to the story about Munan and uh, and his teacher, um, Gudo, right? A person can, they say, a person can acquire his share in this world or in the next world in one hour or in one small turn, right? That is priceless. And that's part of the temporariness of life. Even if you've been telling yourself a story of I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, I'm a sinner, you can let that go and stop identifying as sinner and just identify as pure, empty awareness. Baruch Adonai Le'olam Amen Ve'amen. Thank you so much for coming, guys, as always. Um, yeah, this is uh, this is where it's at. <laughs> Good stuff, my friends. Good, thank you for coming. Elker, I hope you enjoyed, my friend. Thank you. Good night. Yeah, it was great. Thank you so much. We got to talk more, Elker. And good. Thank you very much, guys. We'll uh, we'll catch up soon. You let me know if any any feedback, comments, questions. I'm always I'm always. Thank you very much. I love it, man. Peace and love. See you soon. Bye. Bye.